0: Well, wow, we can't wait. September the 23rd is our concert in the park at Andover Central Park. Starts at 5 o'clock. A lot of cool things. Petting zoo, carriage and wagon rides, food trucks are going to be out there. Concert begins at 6.30, and then it's over at 8, because I know it's a school night, so we're, we're sensitive to that, but be sure and bring a lawn chair, because we're going to have a great time in the park. I've taken more grief for this jersey. <laughs> This is my third going pro series. The first one was 2011, second was 2014, and now this one. And I've worn jerseys from all kinds of teams. I I remember in 2014, wearing Troy Palomalu's jersey. And I'm a Dallas Cowboy fan. And I remember telling you guys, that's how far I'll go for a sermon series. (laughs) A Pittsburgh Steelers jersey. But I honestly, I've taken more grief for this Green Bay jersey. And I'm like, what did the Packers ever do to us, you know? (laughs) And some of you old people out there are thinking Super Bowl I. I got to tell you, in this series, we're looking at high character. Joseph is our coach. I'll talk about that in just a moment. So I thought, I'm not all that in love with what some of the NFL is doing these days. So I thought, I'm going to go back in time and find some high character people. So for those of you who are young, I'm wearing the jersey of Mr. Reggie White. the minister of defense, Reggie, Reggie's greatest defensive end I ever saw. And when he retired, he had more sacks than anybody else's record has been broken. I think Bruce Smith broke it, but, but the main reason why Reggie was a, a preacher of the word of God. And I've heard him preach many times and, and just a great guy and stood up for right and truth and, and it cost him and they tried to get him to apologize, but Reggie wouldn't back down. And we need more of that today. So, uh, that's why a lifelong Dallas Cowboy fan is wearing a Green Bay Packers jersey today. I have heard from some Bears fans. So for those of you who are Bears fans, a Walter Payton jersey is coming. So I just want to let you guys know that. I'm equal opportunity. For all of you who are under 40, I'm going to have to explain the language of the story. When I grew up in the 70s, uh, we, that's where we developed kind of a vernacular, a language that, you know, we, we, words like groovy and cool and all that kind of thing. Because we just didn't want the old people to know what we were talking about. <laughs> so one of those things, and it's kind of stood the test of time, is, is talking about my thing, my thing. You know, we're doing my thing. You know, if somebody, you ask them what you're doing. You know, I'm just doing my thing. And, of course, I came from Texas, and it was doing my thing. So... Uh, <laughs> But your thing was what you were about. I mean, it's what you you did. So hopefully this makes sense. Well, I graduated from college in 1978 and went immediately as a 22-year-old to be pastor of a church in Houston. It was an inner city church. And I loved, outside of New Spring, I loved ministering in this church. It was at that time the biggest church I'd ever been part of. But it was kind of an interesting thing because the pastor was having some emotional and mental trouble. And he and I were the only two people on staff, and he would just disappear for weeks. Didn't know how long he was going to be gone, and he left me in charge. So I preached every sermon, led every song, wrote all the educational material, led the teachers, did every wedding, did every funeral. So I guess we owe him a great debt because I learned a whole lot about pastoring in that time. But one of the responsibilities that I had was a college ministry. And there were about 40 college students in this college ministry, and they were almost all students at the University of Houston. Now, in those days, I used to, my, my days were filled up with walking the streets of the inner city of Houston and my nights as well, and just sharing Jesus with people that I met. You know, I would sometimes knock on a hundred doors in a mobile home park. We a lot of those in that part of Houston, and, or I would just walk the streets. I'd park my car and just walk and go from house to house and talk to people about Jesus. And a lot of great things happened. I remember in those days, the members of the church would tell me, uh, I started to say they would call me pastor, but it was Texas, so they called me Brother Hoover. And they would say to me, please don't go by yourself at night because it's very dangerous. But I did. And there were so many stories. Actually, I was never afraid of people. I was afraid of dogs. I got bitten more than once. But I would walk the streets of Houston, and I would meet people, and I would share the gospel, and I would watch God do extraordinary things. I watched drug dealers accept Christ. I remember one time I knocked on the door of a house and this pasty-faced young man walked out with needle marks all up and down his arm. And I started telling him about Jesus and I was telling him that that Jesus could forgive him and change his life. And he said to me, he could never do that for me. And I said, why? Because he said, because I killed a man right where you're standing. And I said, well, I'll move (laughs) then. And he said, no, it was a drug deal gone bad. A few minutes later, I... Held his head as he accepted Christ as a savior. The next week, I baptized him. So, when I ministered to this college ministry, I would tell them some of the stories that God had done that week. And it was so amazing that I was leading this ministry because I'm 22, and those guys are not much younger than me, if, if if younger. But I remember spring break, 1979. Four of the guys in my college ministry approached me at the end of a Sunday service, and they said, Pastor or Brother Hoover, we've been talking about this, and here's what we've decided. We've drawn straws, and we, each one of us are going to go with you one day. That's pretty cool when you think about college students on their spring break drawing straws to see who can go with their pastor to talk to people. So I did, and one of the cool things, this is just, just FYI, all four of those guys at the end of that week determined they were leaving the University of Houston going into ministry and they all transferred to ministry colleges and did go into ministry. But it was the last day that week that I was going out and a young man named David was with me. And you have to understand when you talk to hundreds of people about Christ you start with getting to know them and hopefully you can get into a discussion about the gospel. So I hate to admit this, but I had kind of a template because, you know, I had to think about, okay, going from house to house to house. There had to be sort of a template or a model for the conversation. And oftentimes I would open up with introducing myself and introducing the person that was with me. And I would try to say something nice. I'd try to find something positive to pick out about their house and have a little small talk there for a few moments. And then I had to, like, put in the clutch and shift gears and go into a very serious conversation. But I always wanted to know the name so that I could call them by their first name. So I would say the same thing every time, you know, I'd be small talk, by the way, what's your name? Well, you know, the most important thing in the world is to know for sure when you die, you're going to heaven. So I'd I've, I've said this hundreds of times that way. By the way, what's your name? You know, the most important things. By the way, what's your name? The most important thing. By the way, what's your name? The most important thing. Well, about three o'clock that afternoon, I was so tired, I got tangled up in my words. And I said to this kid, this kid came outside. He was kind of like a surfer dude. No shirt, no shoes, just jeans. And you know, just, you can sort of tell he's the kind of guy that likes to spend his weekend surfing in Houston. (laughs) I got tangled up. Instead of saying, by the way, what's your name? You know, the most important thing. I said, by the way, what's your thing? (laughs) He said, well, I like to go to the beach. (laughs) Oh, David and I were laughing so hard. I don't even know how we got off that porch. (laughs) So about 25 years later, I'm speaking at a huge ministry conference in Tennessee. Thousands of church leaders from all over the world are gathered there. And I just finished speaking and the session ended, and so all these thousands of people are going out into the lobby and rushing. And all of a sudden I hear this loud voice call out, hey, Mark Hoover, what's your thing? (laughs) It was David, by this time he was part of an international evangelistic association. (laughs) What's your thing? Hey, New Spring. What's your thing? If you had to sum up your life, what you're about, why you do what you do, why you think like you think, why you pursue the things that you pursue, what's your thing? How would you say it? The most, well, I guess, the greatest Christian outside of Jesus put it this way in Philippians chapter one, verse twenty-one. I mean, I want you to understand he had a world-class education. He was a brilliant thinker. He was a world traveler. But this brilliant, great Christian summed up his life in this statement. For to me, to live is Christ. Let's, Let's look at that one more time. For to me, to live is Christ. Whether we verbalize it or not, every single one of us in this building, and all of you watching online or on television... We're making that same kind of statement. For to me to live is blank. What goes in that blank? I mean, we all know people that if they were to be honest, it would be for to me to live is money. For to me to live is a recognition of my peers for, in America. For to me to live is entertainment. And this is one that's really troubling me today as I talk to many Christians for to me to live is my particular politics. I mean, it's like their politics are on the front burner. Jesus is in the caboose. If you, if you listen to them talk very long, you'll understand what drives them is their particular politics. For to me to live, I I used to counsel back in the day, and I remember that there were those who would say, for to me to live is sex. I mean, the thing about it is all of us are putting something in that blank, and you don't need to tell me I wouldn't know what to do with it anyway, but you do need to determine whatever it is that's in your blank. For to me to live, living is blank. It's your thing. It's what you're about. It's why you do what you do. It's why you pursue what you pursue. Well, if you were here last week, you heard me bring a message, and really this message is sort of a piggyback onto the message that I brought last week. Last week, I shared with you, from the life of Joseph, your heartbreaks may be your breakthroughs. And that was a great message for all of us to hear, including myself, and many of you responded to it. But you know, there are some of you out there who are really good Bible students, and all that message, you were waiting for me to use a particular verse because i was talking about how that even the things that we go through in life that are difficult we need those things we saw that in joseph's life we talked about it in our life and some of you are bible students out there and you're like i'm waiting for mark to use romans 8:28 because romans 8:28 is the quintessential your heartbreaks may be your breakthrough verse i love the niv translation the best it says and we know and then you have three phrases in all things god works for good doesn't say all things are good some things are heartbreaks but that's how your heartbreaks become your breakthroughs in all things God works for good but as I said today's message takes us a little further than last week's because for many Christians when they read Romans 8 28, they put a period at the end of what we just read and the idea is no matter how you live your life in all things God works for good but we need to be academically honest with ourselves and recognize that the verse doesn't stop there. The whole verse goes like this. And we know in all things, God works for good of those who love him. And then this line, and those who are called according to his purpose. <laughs> all week long, I've tried to find some sort of catchy title for this message and I realize I can't come up with better language in the Bible. So we're calling today's talk called According to To his purpose. In other words, this message is a summons for our life, our thing, to be God's plan for our life. It is a summons to Paul's purpose statement, for to me to live is Christ. Our series is Going Pro, Coached Up. Going Pro, it's because we're looking at verses from Proverbs, as we will today. Coached Up, because we're looking at the Old Testament life of Joseph, who's just like runs the table, and he's a great person. And so we're learning from him. We're we're gleaning life lessons from Joseph. And if there was a person in the Old Testament, and there were several, but if there was a person in the Old Testament who lived his life according to God's vision, God's purpose for his life, you got to put Joseph probably close to the top of the list. In order to understand him, and I've challenged you to read the chapters about Joseph. They're Genesis 37 through 50. That's 13 chapters because 38 is not about Joseph. But just read his story. And the thing that you're going to discover is that Joseph lives his life according to God's purpose. And it all goes back to a decision that he made when he was a kid. Hey, at New Spring all you have to do is walk around this campus and you know that kids' ministry is job one because we believe kids make great decisions. We we believe kids make very important decisions and we don't just mail in kids' ministry at New Spring Church because of that. And Joseph, Joseph made a huge decision when he was a kid and it comes down to this purpose thing. See, God gave him dreams and he understood that those dreams were vision for his life. Let me read a little bit to you. This is at the beginning of his story, Genesis 37. Joseph had a dream. When he told it to his brothers, they hated him. He said, we were binding sheaves of grain when suddenly my sheaf arose and your sheaves gathered around mine and bowed down to it. And his brothers said to him, do you intend to reign over us? Will you actually rule us? And they hated him all the more because of his dreams. Now, (laughs) there are theologians who say that Joseph should not have told his brothers his dreams. And they might be right, I don't know. I mean, if he'd been a little older, a little more mature, if he'd understood how the world works a little better, he might not have told him his dreams, but there are two things that should be noticed by us. First of all, he didn't give himself those dreams. And secondly, they came true. God gave him those dreams. Now, one of the privileges that I have is not only talking to Christian leaders, I also have privilege from time to time talking to leaders in the corporate world. And so I'm gonna get into a, an, an area for just a few moments where I can talk to leaders. I know many of you are very successful leaders. We have a lot of leaders at New Spring. And life has just summoned you to manage or lead. And I want to talk to us for just a moment. Because, see, Joseph was summoned to lead. That was God's dream. For, and when, when God said to him, this is what's going to happen, Joseph understood that God was calling him to lead. Here's the beautiful thing that all great leaders understand joseph understood that god's dreams for his life he saw that in terms of responsibility to be a blessing now for all of you who are great leaders and that's how you live your life and you understand that even though a lot of people work for you if i talk to you very long you would say i serve all those people who work for me i work for them that's what all great leaders understand And here's the thing. See, the Josephs of this world will never understand the older brothers, and the older brothers of the world will never understand the Josephs of the world. When Joseph said, hey, I had this dream, what he was saying to them is, you know what, someday I'm going to have the responsibility for taking care of you, and I'm going to take care of you. The Josephs of the world always see leadership in terms of responsibility. You know, people are always wanting Joseph to run things. His dad has him run the family business. He gets sold as a slave. And Potiphar, who buys him, ultimately wants him to run the whole operation. He goes to jail on a trumped-up sexual assault charge, and he's wearing an orange jumpsuit, but then the warden of the jail wants him to run the jail, and he comes out of jail, and the, 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 white, the, uh, the most powerful man in the world wants him to run the world. So people are always wanting Joseph to run things, but he never hears that in terms of, yippee, I'm in charge. He hears it in terms of, okay, Now I have the responsibility. See, all of you great leaders know that. But here's the thing. I could be talking to someone. I don't think you would be at New Spring, but you might be watching this service, and you just say, well, Mark, I'm kind of a rebellious person. I resent leadership. I'm going to tell you something. Unless you change that, you're going absolutely nowhere. Because, see, the problem is you don't even understand leadership. You're looking at leadership in terms of privilege. You don't understand that leadership means that you serve the people who work with you. I got a, I got a beautiful illustration of this a long time ago. I, was, I preached a lot at a church in Fairfax, Virginia in the early 90s. And I remember I preached um, on a Sunday there at this church. And the pastor said to me, is it okay with you if we invite a couple to have dinner with us tonight? And I should tell you that the church was basically in the shadow of the Pentagon and there were a lot of military brass, Pentagon brass in this church. Well, the couple I met that night were Ron and Linda Henderson. He'd been a colonel, but he'd just been pinned with his first star. And the pastor said to me, he's got a new assignment. His new assignment, he's going to be the commander of McConnell Air Force Base. And Ron and Linda moved out here. They were part of our church for a couple of years and we became really, really close friends. It wasn't long before he was brought back to the Pentagon, and I was there, I think it was in 1996, and I'm thinking it had to do with the Kosovo situation. But anyway, I was speaking, I was doing a conference for this church, and Ron and Linda had asked me if, if I would come and have dinner with them before one of the services. And I remember he told me the story of how he got a sort of whiplash assignment. It was like he had half a day to prepare. He said, I was told to get ready to go to Europe, And I would have to go that evening, and he was there for several months, and he said, I could only call Linda one time a week, and it was for 30 minutes. And I'm sure at that point, my mouth is open because he's been pinned by now with his second star. And Ron read my mind. I mean, he understood that I was wondering, how can a major general be told to do all those things and be, frankly, jerked around like that? And Ron, as I said, he preempted me because he said, you know, he said, I have more control over my career when I was a second lieutenant than I do now as a major general. And then he added, there are a lot of second lieutenants. There aren't many major generals. See, that's how life works. All of you leaders that are great leaders, you know that. But for some who are a little bit resistant to leadership and you resist, you you don't like leaders, and oftentimes I do understand that leaders mismanage and and, and do things that are wrong. But I want to tell you something. The thing about it is, if you're summoned into leadership, you understand now that you have the responsibility to take care of people. If you're a Christian leader, you understand that you've been summoned into a place of management or leadership to be a blessing to the people, not to lord it over them. And Joseph gets that. You say, Mark, how do you know that? Okay, I'm going to just take you through a few verses out of the book of Genesis to prove to you that every assignment Joseph gets, it's all about serving others. Okay, let's, let's look at in Genesis 37. At this point, he's still working for his dad. This is before his brother sell him. Jacob said to Joseph, your brothers are passing the seed of sheep at Shechem. Get ready, and I will send you to them. Look at Joseph's response. I'm ready to go. I was reading what a Hebrew scholar said. He said literally what that means, sir, I am at your service. Well, he's sold as a slave. He winds up in Potiphar's house. He winds up managing all of Potiphar's estate. I talked about this last week. Potiphar's wife tries to seduce him. Look at this. He wouldn't do it. He said to his master's wife, look, with me here, my master doesn't give a second thought to anything that goes on here. He's put me in charge of everything he owns. He treats me as an equal. The only thing he hasn't turned over to me is you. You're his wife. Now look at this. How could I violate his trust? Joseph's like, I'm here to take care of Potiphar, and I can't, I can't do this awful thing. Well, now Joseph is arrested on this trumped-up sexual assault case. The warden put Joseph in charge of the other prisoners and over everything that happened in the prison. The warden had no more worries because Joseph took care of everything. Now look at this one because this one's really amazing. This is after Joseph is running the world and he's brought his brothers, the guys who sold him into slavery, he's brought them there and he's given them all condos, swimming pools, and BMWs. Just grant me a little anachronism there. And so Joseph is explaining, look at this. He said, don't be angry with yourselves for selling me to this place. It was God who sent me here ahead of you to preserve your lives. Remember, I told you that when Joseph shared his dream, he was like saying, guys, someday I'm going to take care of you. His brothers were thinking, wow, he thinks he's hot stuff. And Joseph was like, you know, someday I'm going to take care of you guys. And look at you see it here. He said, this famine is going to last for five more years. There will be neither planting nor harvesting. God has sent me ahead of you to keep you and your families alive and to preserve many survivors. So Joseph saw his life as his calling, and in his particular case, like some of you, he had been called to lead and manage. And his purpose statement was this, for to me to live is God's purpose for my life. And that leads me to a second thought. If you live your life according to God's purpose, the people around you probably will not understand you. Remember, Joseph was like, I'm going to take care of you someday. All they heard was this kid thinks he's privileged. They hated him and sold him. It's why Potiphar's wife lied on him, and he went to jail for 10 years. And I'm not trying to be negative today, but if you decide you're going to live your life according to God's purpose, for one thing, you'll have spiritual warfare because Satan will come against you. Your motives will be questioned and your actions will be misinterpreted. I just talked to some of you who try to live your life according to God's purpose and you try to make sense of how sometimes people misunderstand your intentions. (laughs) Well, you could be saying, well, Mark, you're not a very good salesman. I mean, if you're trying to get me here to live my life according to God's purpose, you're not doing very well. Why would I ever choose this kind of life? It should be pointed out it's not for wimps. Have you ever looked at the recruiting slogans for Marines? I mean, the Marines are looking for a few good men, the few, the proud, the Marines. If you go back a little further, we don't promise you a rose garden. And even a little further still, if everybody could get into the Marines, that wouldn't be the Marines. But you know, one of the things that you watch through the years is when recruiters set up there's always a line at the Marine, at the Marine recruiting stand. My son, Stephen, gave me this illustration yesterday, and I really loved it. He said there were three guys from three branches of the service, the Army, the Navy, and the Marines, who were having a, an assembly at a high school. They, had, they were given 45 minutes. Each one was given 15 minutes. The Army recruiter went first, and he shared all the opportunities that were in the Army, and he went a little long. He went over his time. And then the, the Navy recruiter, I guess, in an attempt to say, hey, you know, we got a lot of opportunities too, he went a little long, and by the time he got through, there were only two minutes left for the Marine recruiter before the bell would ring. So when the Marine recruiter got up there, he stood up like this, crossed his arms, and his eyes scanned the audience. And he didn't use a minute of his time, half his time. He just looked over the audience. And then finally he spoke. He said, I see two or three of you. It was like a whole high school. Assembly. I see two or three of you who are probably able to be Marines. When I get back to my booth, I want to see that two or three of you. <laughs> when he got back to his booth, there was a mob there. <laughs> Why? Because I think deep down inside, healthy people respond to a challenge. See, the thing about it is, challenge is very close to purpose. You and I live in an age where we're groomed not to have any serious purpose. You I know? Mean, I, I hear stories of guys who are 25 and 30 years old for hours playing video games. You know, you realize, guys, if you're doing that, that's the same thing that a pacifier is to a baby. See, a pacifier, the, the baby... The baby's not getting anything out of it, but it keeps him busy. But I mean, that's just one example. There are all kinds of examples. I mean, you know, we could talk about social media. Our culture is grooming us not to have any purpose. And you know what? What's going to happen if we don't deal with that, we're going to be 40, 50, 60, 70 years old, and we're going to look back and realize we burned up a whole bunch of time and didn't really do anything worthwhile. So today, I I would just say, yeah, it is a challenge to have Christ as your purpose, and it's uphill, but there's a a second reason why I would encourage you to say, for to me, to live is God's will for my life. And that is because there is an enormous promise attached to it. We saw it a few minutes ago, and we know in all things... God works for good to those who love him, who have been the called according to his purpose. If you show up at the recruiting booth and Jesus is there at the booth and you're determining, you're saying, Jesus, whatever I do in my life, I'm going to exist for your purpose. Well, then all of a sudden you got to guarantee that whatever happens in your life, God is going to work and he is working in all the events. Even if the events are not good, he's going to work it for good. Well, I have about, I don't know, eight minutes now. So for the new, next part of this message, here's what I want to do. I want to talk to you if you've decided that you're going to stand in that recruiting line. And I'm going to, I'm going to live my life for God's purpose. What, what do we need to know? Well, number one, it simplifies things. Am I talking to anybody else here who's tired of the complexity of trying to navigate life in the 21st century? Well, you know, if you, if you, here's the thing. If you look at where life takes Joseph, it's complex. But although the situations around him are complicated, Joseph's decisions don't seem to be complicated. I mean, it's, well, it's like a guy who's one of my favorite preachers. Mary Alice and I got cable in Jonathan on the same week in 1981. <laughs> cable television came to Fort Worth. <laughs> And we didn't have that many channels back in the day. I think there were only like 12 channels, you know. But uh, there were two super sessions WGN in Chicago, WTBS in, in Atlanta. And Jonathan, when he was born, was very colicky, and Mary Alice would get tired. And, and the only thing that would keep him from crying was if you just kind of walked with him and kind of like gently bounced him. So oftentimes I'd be up at 1, 2, 3 o'clock in the morning just walking with Jonathan. So turn on cable television I had on WTBS and I had a real bias against television preachers back in those days. I thought most of them were after money and a lot of them were just kind of like showboating and stuff. But all of a sudden I watched this preacher, this tall, skinny preacher. And I mean, he preached a fantastic message. And I remember the next morning I told Mary Alice, you will not believe this television preacher I saw in the middle of the night on WTBS. And I have watched him for the last 40 years. And although he's elderly now, he's always been a blessing to my life. His name is Charles Stanley. Charles's, Charles's motto for life is such a Joseph motto. I, I don't know how many times I've heard Charles say this. Obey God and leave the consequences to him. That simplifies life. And you know, what's beautiful about this is Joseph wound up exactly where his dreams told him he was going to go. Joseph knew his dreams were leadership and management, and he winds up exactly where his dreams told him he he was going to go. In other words, what God promised him, God delivered on, but Joseph doesn't seem to be worried about making it happen. Joseph simplifies life. Whether he's running his dad's business, whether he's running Potiphar's business, whether he's in in jail as a prisoner running the prison, or if he's running the world, it's the same thing. No matter what he does, he just stays aligned with God's will, and he takes care of what's in front of him. He controls what he can control. And I'll talk about this maybe at a later message, but, you know, I've talked to so many people who will say, well, right now, I've got a D-minus job but if I ever get an A job, I'm gonna bring my A game, but I've got a D minus job, so I'm gonna bring a D minus effort. That doesn't work in life. Joseph brought his A game. Didn't matter if he was in jail, pushing a broom, running the prison, or if he's running the world, he always brings his A game. It's very simple. You just do God's will, and you take care of what's in front of you. Here's the second thing that you need to know, and this is huge. If, if you're doing the right thing, it simplifies life, and you don't have to make sense of the individual pieces of your life. You know, I've talked to so many people through the years as a pastor, and they would tell me about events that happened in their life, and they'll say, do you think God was saying this to me? Do you think God, this is the reason why this happened? And so many times I don't know the answer. Hey, guys, we're going to go pro for a few moments, so we're going to look at Proverbs. I want to I show you this progression of verses. Proverbs 16, 9. We can make our plans, but the Lord determines our steps. Okay, let's start there. Let's move up. Proverbs 19, 21. You can make many plans, but the Lord's purpose will prevail. And now this one. Proverbs 20, 24. The Lord directs our steps, so why try to understand everything along the way? I mean, here's the thing. If you're Joseph and you're trying to make sense of why you're in jail, you don't don't have any answer for that. But when he's... Running the world, he understands how it fits. And so many times what we try to do, we try to understand the individual events in our lives and we're like, I don't understand how anything, I don't know how a loving God can be part of this. I was working on the message and I happened to be driving Mary Lance through Starbucks yesterday. (laughs) And I love blueberry muffins. I didn't order one, I don't need them, but I thought about it. You know what the Bible is telling us here? You don't try to understand the individual ingredients when God is working on the recipe. Have you ever thought about a muffin? I mean, I love to sink my teeth into a moist blueberry muffin, but you know what? I don't think I would like to sink my teeth into the individual ingredients. I mean, you could taste flour and it's like, I don't think this is worth eating. Or you could taste baking soda or salt. Hey, but the muffin is good. I'm not trying to be corny or flip with you today. I'm just telling you, this is what the word of God is telling us. Look, if you've determined that you live for God's purpose, you know what? You can make your plans, but God is hes he's working in your life. He's directing your steps. His purpose is going to prevail. So don't try to understand everything along the way. Just keep focused on God. Here's the last thing. It's a way of life, not a particular job. You know, there's a myth in church, I don't think in New Spring, but especially in the traditional church. There's a myth in church that goes something like this. If you're called into ministry, it's because you're a preacher or a pastor or a missionary or, you know, youth, youth leader or something like that. I remember I was 16 years old when God called me to preach, and I heard people talk about me, and they would say, Mark has been called to preach. That's true. I would hear them say when I, was, I started pastoring at 20, they would say, Mark has been called to pastor. That's true. But I often heard people say something about me that the way it was implied, it wasn't true. Mark has been called into ministry. I want to talk to every woman here who's God's daughter. You've been called into ministry. To every son of God here, you've been called into ministry. You say, but Mark, I'm a teacher. Hey, that's where God has called you to be the hands and feet of Jesus. That's your calling. You've, You've been called to be... In God's ministry, as a teacher, you say, well, Mark, I have all these restrictions on me, that I, things I can say and things I can't say. I understand that, but nobody can stop you from being the hands and feet of Jesus. You say, Mark, I'm a, I, I'm a small business owner. But you've been called to put Jesus first in that. You say, Mark, I'm, I'm, I'm lead partner of a law firm. Okay, then, then God has called you there to To be Jesus in that place. I don't mean Jesus in the sense of saving people, but just Jesus in the sense of of being his hands and feet in that place. I mean, the the important thing is how you see yourself in that role. If you see yourself as your purpose being Christ, then you're in ministry. It's true whether you're a homemaker or plumber, whatever you do. I've been in New Spring a long time and, of course, been in Wichita a long time. I remember the first week I was here. I was 28 years old, and Wichita was, let's just say it was different for me. It took a while for me to get adjusted. Wichita just seemed different. I mean, the only two places I'd lived before were the Dallas-Fort Worth area and Houston. And never forget being here the first week and hearing people talk about the traffic here. (laughs) you know, traffic in Wichita. Now I complain about the traffic here. (laughs) I've been here a long time. But I wound up having a funeral the first week I was here. I don't know if you've ever thought about a minister. I've done over a thousand funerals now. And even when I came here at 28, I'd already done a lot of funerals. I think the first funeral I did, I was 16. And I would had a lot of funerals. And, And so, you know, one of the things that I did oftentimes, especially if I was unfamiliar with the area... And ministers do this even to this day. When you're in a funeral procession, if you don't know the area very well, instead of taking your own car, you just ride with the funeral director. So I'd be in the front seat of the hearse, riding out to the cemetery. I used to have a too cute saying I used to have back in those days about marriage. And I would say, it's for better or worse till you ride in the hearse. <laughs> and Marianne said to me, you can't say that anymore because you ride in a hearse all the time. But, you know, you'd be in there in the front seat of the hearse with a funeral director, and so you're there for a long time because you're driving out real slow. How do, you, well, how, how do you break the ice with a funeral director? How do you start small talk? So as I said, I'd already done a lot of funerals, and I'd known most of the funeral directors in Fort Worth. And so, but what I'd always do when I was sitting down with someone I didn't know, I'd always ask them, how did you get into the business? And I heard all kinds of stories. I mean, the most... Prevalent story was, well, it's a family, family business. And my favorite answer I heard from a guy in Texas before I came here, he said, uh, when he was in college, he spent a summer shoveling asphalt for a road crew, and he said, I said to myself, there's got to be a better way to make a living than this. So it's my first funeral in Wichita, and I'm riding in the hearse with a funeral director that I've only met a few minutes before, and he was Bill Cozine. and Bill's our neighbor. He and Ashley are in a They're building a new facility just right across the expressway from us. And we've been long-time friends. But I didn't know them at the time. And I don't know how many of you know Bill, but Bill can be kind of dry, you know. It's just sort of his personality. And I remember asking him, just kind of in a flip, you know, kind of too cute kind of way, how'd you get in the business? And I'll never forget, and I've told this story all over the world, as Bill turned and pointed his finger at my face and he said... I believe God has called me into this ministry as much as you believe God has called me into your ministry. As I said, we've been dear friends for a lot of years, and I've had 37 years to watch Bill and Ashley now and watch them live that out. See, you don't have to be a pastor or a missionary or work for a church to be in ministry. It's like what Bill said. You see where God has placed you. And whatever God's led you to do for a living financially, you see that environment and your family and every place in your life as being the ministry that God has called me into. Now, I know there are a couple of deal breakers, so hey. We always address the elephants in the room at New Spring. There are a couple of deal breakers. Because here's the thing. You know, we could get to this part of the sermon. You hear they say, oh, Mark, it's very well and good. But there's a problem. There's a reason why I can never live my life according to God's purpose. Here's deal breaker number one. If I did it, it would mean that I no longer control my life. And I want to control it. If I really turned my life over to God, then obviously I would not be in control of things. Fair, fair point. But aren't you tired of trying to control your life? Aren't you tired of trying to make things work out? Aren't you exhausted? Aren't you frustrated? What if you could turn your life over to the one who wrote the codes for DNA and have the promise that if you live according to his purpose, he would make everything in your life, even if it's not good, turn out good? And here's a second deal breaker. Because somebody would say, Mark, to be honest with you, I'm doing something and I know it's wrong. I know it's sin in my life, but I'm enjoying it. and I don't want to give it up. And I understand that if I turn my life over to God's purpose, I couldn't, I couldn't tell God, yes, I'm living according to your purpose and keep in this relationship or whatever it is. Fair? But look at Joseph and answer the question, which was better, a few minutes with Potiphar's wife or a whole life of God's blessing? Can I have five more minutes? Yep. A few minutes ago, I referenced the point that you don't want to get to be 40, 50, 60 years old and not know why you lived. There's one more reason why it's really important to live according to God's purpose, and I'm going to tell you a story because I think it's more, more meaningful than just giving you the point. Name Borden ring a bell? Hey, if you use dairy products, probably does. Well, the Borden family's been around for a long time. William Borden was born in 1887. He was the heir to all the fortune. He was going to be a millionaire. There weren't many millionaires in the late 1800s, but the Borden family were. And everybody expected him to grow up a privileged kid and live a life of wealth, But something happened when William was seven years old. His mother, as we say, his mother got saved, and I mean really saved. And they were in this high church kind of church, but she wasn't getting spiritually what she needed out of that, so they were in Chicago. His mother took the kids to Moody Church, which was in its time probably a whole lot like New Spring. And I mean God really worked in the life of all our kids, but especially in William's life. When William was 16 years old, he graduated from high school, and his family gave him a trip around the world. But instead of seeing the sights that most people see, what William saw was people groups that didn't know Jesus. And he came home from that trip around the world, and William said, God has called me to be a missionary. Oh, man, you're the scion, you're the the heir of millions of dollars, and you're going to go, in his case, he wanted to go to China. And be a missionary. I mean, a friend of his said, "You know what? You do that, you'll waste your life." So William Borden took his Bible and opened up the back cover, and on the page there, he wrote two words: "No reserve." We don't use that very much anymore. It means to hold something back. About the only time we look at "no reserve" is at auction, like on eBay. If there's no reserves, it means you know it's not being held back. Whatever's bids, bid. And he wrote that in the back of his Bible: "No reserve." He went on to Yale University, and he was kind of expecting to see deep-thinking people at Yale University, but when he got there, he found out that most of the kids that were there were shallow, and the professors weren't much better, and they didn't know anything about having purpose in life. So William Borden, as a freshman, said to his dorm mate, he said, you know what, we need to start a Bible study and prayer every morning and pray for the students at Yale. It wasn't long before 20 people were meeting with him and then 50 and by the time he was a senior, 1,000 out of the 1,300 students at Yale University met together for Bible study and prayer that was started by William Borden. And in those early days, he realized there were a lot of kids there that were hard cases. And so he sat down with a few that were meeting for Bible study and prayer, and he said, hey, let's just make a list, and each one of us, we're going to take, take that person as a project. And when there would be a kid that was just considered to be too hard a case, William would say, mark him down to me, I'll take, I'll take that. And as I said, William Borden, in fact, there's a book called Borden of Yale that's worth reading. By the time he got through, 1,000 of the 1,300 kids were meeting every morning for prayer and Bible study. When he graduated with honors from Yale University, he had so many offers because, after all, he had the Borden name. He was an extraordinary student, and there were all these offers pouring in for all kinds of money for him to take various jobs. But Borden said, nope. And I was 16 years old. I told God that I would live according to His purpose, and I said I'd be a missionary. And one more time, He opened up His Bible, the back cover, and He wrote the words, "No retreat." He graduated from Princeton Seminary, and he set out to China because he was going to be a missionary to the Muslim people of China that had really no witness. But he had to stop in Egypt first because that's where he would learn the language. And so he went to language school in Cairo. And even then, he and the other students would walk the streets of Cairo and share Christ. But unfortunately, I guess the way the world looks at it, he contracted in Egypt viral meningitis And he never made it to China. William Borden died in Egypt. And it was in all the newspapers and all the news magazines all over the United States, the story of this wealthy young man, by this time himself a millionaire. And I mean, he had, oh goodness, I didn't even tell the other church, other services this. He started a rescue mission in New Haven. Huge. But of course, he died and everybody said, what a shame. And the family sent staff to Egypt to collect his belongings. And whoever collected his belongings found his Bible. And they opened the back flyleaf. And they saw where as a 16-year-old high school student he had written, no reserve. And they saw when he was given all those offers as the honor graduate from Yale where he had written, no retreat. But he had added a third statement that was scrawled in handwriting that showed his weakness and he'd written just a few days before his death, no regret. For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And whether you die at 20 or you die at 105, you'll be able to say no regret.